The radical gospel reading and sermon text is John 3, 16 to 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the gospel of the Lord. Glory to you, O Lord. Let's pray. Oh Lord, such a powerful gospel, such great love. Please use your word in this sermon to awaken sleeping souls, to revive your church, and to call us to proclaim this great message of your great love and eternal life that comes only through you, Jesus. And it's your name we pray. Amen. Well, the last sermon, uh, a couple weeks ago, I mentioned a former atheist by the name of Anthony Flew. And I'm going to mention him again this morning to refresh our memories. Anthony Flew was converted from atheism to theism, to believing in God. And the evidence that finally convinced Flew that, that, that God truly existed was this orderly design in the laws of nature that he observed. And Flew says that when he recognized and pondered the complexities and orderliness of nature and its laws, Dr. Flew was compelled to follow the evidence where it led, and it led to the conclusion for him that there is a God. He realized that DNA, the beauty, and order all exist because of the elements of nature fully and perfectly obeying their laws. These laws like gravity, these laws of physics, aerodynamics, I'm sure there's a lot of sub-laws in there that, could be, that Dave could tell us about that, that go in there. There, there. there are all of these laws of nature, thermodynamics, that tell the molecules and the molecules and the elements they all obey. They're not created with free will. And think about this. The molecules, the clouds, the air, the water all obey these laws. And because of that, because of their perfect and complete obedience, we can predict the weather. 
We can fly planes. We can even keep them on schedule if, if the airlines are able to do that, but that's, that's a man-made thing there. We can send rockets into the sky. We can keep satellites in an orbit, maintaining our communications network, all because of the elements obeying the laws of physics and whatever else, the laws of nature. We can even still navigate the Earth by observing the stars. That's been done for thousands of years and has not stopped. It's still ticking. It's all due to the perfect order of creation. But since the fall of man, it's also why we experience disasters, death, and decay. Unfortunately, man-made and natural. It's why the atomic bomb does what it does and did what it did. Because the elements follow the laws of nature. It's why we have plane crashes, when things don't go right mechanically, when man fails or when mechanics fail, the law of gravity still stands. The laws of friction, things catch on fire and so on because the elements obey their laws regardless of who it affects. Nature's laws, although they're not, although they're good, they're not based on fairness, are they? They're based on order given by their creator. They maintain, they maintain the order that they were created to maintain. No wiggle room, no grace, no fairness. And there are times when we cry out for deliverance from the power of nature's laws, aren't there? Many of us are doing that this morning. Just as nature's laws have no wiggle room because it would violate the order of the universe, so God's law has no wiggle room either. You see, we're prone to think of God like we think of ourselves, making laws to just to keep people in line. But God's law is more about maintaining his purity, his holiness. As the Bible says, without holiness, no one can see God. No one can be in his presence. So God's moral law has no wiggle room either. Because he is pure, he's perfect, he's holy. And to have a relationship with our God and creator, we must too be holy and pure ourselves. But if you're familiar with yourself, with human nature, and what the Bible tells us, God's people created with free will, don't do a very good job obeying God's holy law, do we? Now I start out with this because God's law and his holiness, this perfect law of God, is also the backdrop for this great passage today. This perfect law that we can't obey, we also cry out for deliverance from. As Paul says in Romans, O wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? I can't obey the law of God. Before this most famous passage, this most famous verse in the Bible is given, Jesus, as he's talking to Nicodemus, sets the stage for the reader to better understand the situation the darkness of the world into which he, the light of the world, was sent, and the depths of the love God has for the world. See, Nicodemus and the other Jewish rulers, he was a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, if you remember, and he held the law to a supremely high value. And at the same time, they also 
created ways to make the law bearable, to where they could obey it. They created a, a more legalistic code to where on the outside they could look like they were righteous. But Jesus, as you know, calls them out on that throughout the Gospels. They also believed they were okay or they were holy in God's eyes simply because of who they were. They were Jews. They were children of Abraham. Later on, they'll say, God is our father. Abraham is our father. That's who they're going to be claiming for their credentials. They had their own idea of what was fair. So before we get into 3.16 here, we want to look back at 14, because this is how Jesus led up to what we're about to look at today. Remember, we touched on this last uh, two weeks ago. But Jesus, sitting down with Nicodemus, says this. He says, as Moses lifted up the servant, serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What's he talking about? I'm gonna, I figure I'd, let me read from that today. It's only five verses. It's in the book of Numbers. It's on page 152 if you want to find it. But this is Israel in the wilderness. Numbers 21, verse 4. It says, from Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. You ever been impatient with God and speak out against him? Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many, of, and many people of Israel died. Some people looking at this might think, that is really unfair. They're complaining. And God sends fiery serpents after them, poisonous serpents, to bite them and kill them, all because they complained. That's right. And that's the point of this passage that we're looking at today. God's law is severe. God's law does not tolerate unholiness. It's the character and nature of God. It's the same way that we cannot walk up to a fire and complain to it saying, why can't you let me walk through you without burning me? That doesn't make sense and it's not fair. In the same way, we cannot approach God and expect not to be condemned for not being holy. He requires absolute holiness. So what did God do? And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And what happened is interesting. He didn't take the serpents away. Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent out of bronze. It's a bronze serpent, in other words. And set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. In other words, they were to look upon that serpent. Moses was to lift it up on a pole. And anyone who was bitten and poisoned by these serpents was to look upon what God provided for them. And by looking upon them, trusting in God's provision, they would be healed. Looking ahead to what Jesus was going to do. 
This is why Jesus quoted this passage to Nicodemus. And reading back in verse 14, he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, just as Moses did what he did in the wilderness with the fiery serpent, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Why? Why, Jesus? That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That serpent on the pole was looking ahead to a savior that was going to be brought into the world to be looked upon when he was lifted up. And that word for lifted up, as we said last time, I know we're doing some review here, but that word for lifted up meant also meant to be crucified on the cross. It's mentioned in John 8 and John 12, but also to be exalted, to be lifted up and crucified. But Jesus was crucified, lifted up on a cross, but he was also later lifted up and exalted. And as the exalted Christ, we look to him for our healing. He was just telling Nicodemus about the judgment of God on the people of Israel, that all have sinned and rebelled, saying, Nicodemus, you too, as a Jew, you too have been bitten by that serpent. And you cannot be in God's presence. That the only way to be saved was to look on what God had provided for healing and salvation. God's laws and standards are strict. Yes, they are. They demand absolute holiness, absolute purity in order to be in his presence, in order to dwell with him in his kingdom. Some look at that and say God is just self-centered and power-hungry, just a dictator, just wanting to use us. But as with the universe, as with the laws of nature that demand perfect order to keep everything together, to be with God demands all who are with him to be perfectly holy. So we see here, if this sounds unfair to you, God establishes a new fairness in this passage. What we'll see here is a new fairness. It says three things. This passage that we're going to look at today says that all are loved. All are condemned. And all need Jesus. If we included 14 and 15 in there, it, the outline would be this. All are condemned, all are loved, all are condemned. And all need Jesus. Verse 16, we know it well. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. What we'll see here is that God's fairness goes against what we think is fair. That it goes against what the Jewish leaders thought was fair. We're going to see that all are loved in this. And we see this as we look at this, at this very first passage. You can go through this. It, it takes time just to go through the first few words of this passage. For God so loved, we're going to stop there. Do you ever tell somebody, I so love you, your spouse or your children or your parent, I so love you. You and I all know what that means. That's exactly what it means here. The construction of the words here is an intensifying of the word love here. This is saying that God so loved 
but even more so. What is the object of his love here? God so loved the world. If you look at how John uses the word world throughout his writing, sometimes he'll use it in a neutral sense, like, like the world could not contain all of the, the, the works that Jesus did. He did so many of them, kind of in a neutral sense. But most of the time, it is in a sense of condemnation, in a sinful realm. Do not, first John, he says, do not love the world or the things of the world. Do not love the ways of the world. But here it says, God puts his intense love toward the world. That he loved the world, godless humanity, those who are condemned under the law, who love the darkness. And by the way, Nicodemus, the world is the object of God's love, not just the Jews. In fact, for Nicodemus, that would really hit home if he knew that God also loved the Samaritans in the same way. The nations, the Gentiles. That seems to be the emphasis here in the context of speaking to an exclusive Jew, but what about for us? What about the adulterer? What about the swindler, the one who just cheated you out of money? What about the white supremacist? What about the homosexual? What about the ones struggling with their identity, with their, with their gender? What about the thief? What about the ones who have been illegally trying to get into our nation? Fill in the blank. Anyone that you find you cannot sit before, that you could not sit with, And then think, God so loved them. God so placed his love on them. That's the world about which this verse is, taking, is talking about. How much did he love the world? How much did he love all those just mentioned and more? That he gave his only son. That he gave a gift. And he gave a gift like no other gift could be given. As the construction earlier stressed about the greatness of his love, the intensity of his love, this passage also stresses the intensity of the gift. He gave his only begotten son, the only one that came from him, Christ himself. Christ, who was purity himself, who was light himself, came, coming into the darkness and not only did, did he give him, but he gave him as a sacrifice. The whole language here is talking about, is pointing to a gift of a sacrifice. Now think back of all those people mentioned. Think back of those people that repulse you. Think back of the people that the world hates, that the world judges. Think about yourself. Think about your innermost thoughts. Think about the darkness of your souls and think about Jesus coming to you because God so loved you that he gave Jesus for you. Why? 
that whoever, whoever, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What do you mean by believe? What do I mean to look on that, ser- on that serpent, on the pole that, that Moses held up? To look upon that serpent that God put on the pole, that, that God had Moses put on the pole, to look upon that serpent meant you had to believe that it was going to heal you because you'd just been bitten by a poisonous snake. You going to trust that? Are you going to go running for a tourniquet? <laughs> God was saying, Trust me. Trust the provision. Believe on the thing that I put there on that pole that Moses is holding up. Not because it's a snake on a pole, but because I provided it. And that's the power of my provision for you. And even greater, he he provided not a serpent, but God himself. God himself in the flesh. The only source of life, remember back in verse 1, it says he was the light, and the light was the life of men. Or he was the life, and the life was the light of men. And 17 says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Who would be the most qualified to come to this world, to even come into this room and start pointing fingers Who would be the most qualified to do that? Who would be the most qualified to condemn each and every one of us? There's no one else but Jesus. He's the one most qualified to come here and condemn us. We love condemning each other. We love pointing the finger at each other, but we have no right to do it because we're just as bad. We are part of that world. But Jesus, the only one who had the right, the only one who had the holiness and the purity to come and say, you're condemned. This passage here says that's not why he came. He didn't come to condemn. Why'd he come? In order that this world all those that were mentioned, all of us, all of us in our darkness, in order that the world might be saved through him. Saved. Made holy. Why does the world need to be saved through him? Because just as all are loved, all are condemned. All are condemned. Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, Tim Keller, your grandmother. The sweetest, kindest, godliest person you could think of. Fill in the blank there. Who is the holiest person you know? Who is the kindest, most generous person that would give you all of their possessions just to make you happy? They're condemned too. That sounds really harsh. That sounds unfair. But if it wasn't harsh, if it wasn't wasn't harsh, if God's holiness did not demand absolute holiness from from all of us, from anyone who wanted to be in his presence, then Jesus would have never had to come. This verse would have been 
useless, unnecessary. Verse 18 says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. And notice something. The reason for the condemnation is because they have not placed their faith, they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Because that only Son of God is the only way to be saved. And he's going to say this later. A couple ways. Chapter 10, he'll say, I'm the gate. No one comes to the sheep but through me. Verse 14, chapter 14, he'll say, I am the way and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Nobody comes to the holiness of God. No one can stand in the presence of the Holy Father except through me. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And what's the judgment? This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. He's come. But what happens? People love the darkness rather than the light. And why? Do you like to have your most darkest secrets exposed? Neither do I. Jesus, as the light of the world, comes and exposes who we are. He exposes us for who we really are in our unholiness, in our sinfulness, in our condemnation. But if we receive him, if we, if we believe in him, then we know that when he exposes the deeds that are, that, of, our, of our sinfulness, that he also takes them and casts them as far as the east is from the west. He takes them. He takes them upon himself. And they're nailed to the cross, as Paul tells us in Colossians. Never to be held against us again. The only way we could do works to be holy and true is to do them in the light of Jesus Verse 20 says, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that, that his works have been carried out in God. The only way to do works that are true, works that are done in the light, is to do them through the belief in Christ, is to do them in Christ. Anything that you and I do on our own, we are doing in our unholy selves. It is only by having Jesus as our new life it is only by having the new life in Jesus that we are doing works that are pleasing to God. So are we to look upon the only Son of God, lifted up as God's gift for us, our source of forgiveness in life. This is our message. This is our message, brothers and sisters. This is the message of the gospel. 
And so many times we look at this passage and we think, oh, John 3.16, we see Tim Tebow with it under his eyes. We see the guy with the crazy hair on the sports commercials or, or the sports events or somebody else. I don't know if you remember the guy with the rainbow hair. Do you remember him? He used to carry this sign, John 3.16. And John 3.16 became just a thing of its own. But the content of the passage has been lost. It's been lost in the church. Sometimes when we think about John 3, I, I think we think about Nicodemus rolling his eyes when it's quoted to him. This is the message of the gospel. This is the true gospel. And it's the life that our church needs. It's the message that we need to be taking upon ourselves and reminding ourselves of every day, reminding ourselves of our condemnation without Christ. Reminding ourselves that we need the gospel every day, that we need Jesus every day, that without him we have no righteousness. It's the message also, it's the reason why we are here. It's the message that we are to be taking out to our community. Not only do we take it to ourselves here, remind ourselves, disciple one another, care for one another, but recognizing that the world is also outside of this church and the world also needs this message. And I'm going to tell you that if we don't do it here, somebody else will. If we don't do it, somebody else will. Somebody else will move into this building. And somebody else will spread the message of Christ's love to this community. This is why God has placed his church here, brothers and sisters. This is why he's placed us here. May we take that responsibility. May we continue to remind ourselves of the joy of this gospel. That this is something that has been given to us. It's a gift that is like unlike any other. It's been given to us. It's new life. And may we take this new life to this community and to one another. And may God breathe life into our church. In Christ's name, amen.